0: And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the state of DACA and other immigration issues here in the United States. Also going to be talking about the ongoing uh, crisis in Haiti as de facto leader Ariel Henry is uh, uh, calling for foreign intervention in the country and much, much more. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by the Victor, a member of the Party for Socialism and Liberation and an organizer for immigrant rights. Victor, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here.
0: Absolutely. And we're glad to have you here, Victor and here recently, the New Orleans 5th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals declared that DACA, uh, also known as the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, they deemed this uh, unlawful, which uh, is in agreement with another statement that was made by a uh, Texas based U.S. District Judge Andrew Hannon. Now, my understanding is that this uh, decision uh, did not end DACA, but instead sent it back to the district court for review. Now, Now, as it stands, there's close to 600,000 people uh, uh, under DACA uh, with an active status, which allows them to do things like uh, legally work and drive and have some level of protection for deportation. So, Victor, I was hoping you could help us understand uh, uh, just what this court decision means and what impact does it stand to have uh, for DREAMers here?
1: Right, right. So let's go back to when DACA first started. I, I am a DACA recipient, so I've been on DACA for six years now. I started with the Obama administration through an executive order. And then when Trump became president, he tried to end it. But the way he tried to end it, it wasn't the most like legal way. So that's, that's when the Supreme Court stepped in and declared that he couldn't completely end it. So since Trump became president, it's kind of been in limbo. So they haven't been taking new applications, uh, but people who have already had DACA before Trump, they can still renew it. So I can still renew my DACA. So that's where it's been at for the last like couple of two years, I believe. And recently, um, when Biden became president, he stated that he was going to reinstall DACAs for new applicants. But the Texas, uh, Texas judge that you spoke about, he declared it unlawful. So that's where it's been at now uh, for a couple of two years now. And the recent decis- decision just... Uh, He agreed with the Texas-based judge to say DACA is unlawful. So right now, it's likely that uh, it it will probably go to the Supreme Court next year if Biden files an appeal uh, for the decision that the uh, Fifth Circuit appeals declared. So that's what it's looking like now the Supreme Court. And when it does go to the Supreme Court, it is very unlikely, very likely that they will end DACA. And that means that 600,000, or close to 600,000 uh, young adults will be left without uh, le- a way to legally work, uh, without to drive, and they might be deported. So that's what's looking like now, and it's looking very grim.
0: Yeah, I mean, definitely. When we consider that the far right majority uh, that um, is currently the the situation in the Supreme Court uh, certainly does not paint uh, the rosiest picture. But, you know, I also know, you know, in speaking about sort of the immigration issue in the United States more broadly, I mean, I know that there's a roughly over 11 million people who are undocumented here in the U.S. that don't have uh, any kind of protection. So, I mean, what do you see as sort of the the connection, if you will, of the plight of the undocumented with uh, of the dreamers. Because I-, I feel like there's this strange tendency in the U.S. to sort of— um stratify uh, immigrants, if you will, uh, sort of depending on their status. But I mean, how does the uh, sort of plight, if you will, of uh, undocumented people here in the U.S., uh, in the millions, uh, how does that connect uh, to what's sort of happening with uh, uh, DREAMers right now in terms of how these protections are under threat?
1: Right, right. Um, Well, first of all, DACA has never been enough. It only covers like a very small portion of the undocumented community. Uh, and most of them have no protection uh, my parents have no protection um, and that's really where i my fight is for i feel like in the like the mainstream media they usually only talk about DACA dreamers which is only a small percentage of undocumented people and the fight has to be for all undocumented people all 11 million people who have no protection who are who t- typically work very low-paying jobs and are exploited by, by their bosses, and they really have no way to speak out against this exploitation because they fear deportation. So whenever we talk about immigrant rights, we have to be talking about all undocumented people.
0: Yeah, and I'm curious from your perspective, Victor, particularly as someone who is uh, under DACA, I mean, what do you think this— sort of program should really look like. I mean, how robust uh, do you think that these uh, uh, protections uh, sort of should be? And, and sort of because it seems to me that they would have to be pretty uh, uh, thorough in order to really uh, uh, address a lot of these issues. Because as you say, DACA as it stands, even now, uh, isn't enough and, and and hasn't been. So uh, how Thorough, uh, do you think uh, these kinds of protection should be in terms of what sort of a real uh, a program for protecting the undocumented would look like here in the U.S.?
1: Right. So right now, there's the DREAM Act that's been uh, that was created in 2001. And that DREAM Act has a lot of different programs under it. And uh, it, will ha- it would offer a lot more protection to the parents of doctor recipients it's called DAPA. And that program never like it never took off and never got passed through Congress. Uh, but ideally, there needs, there needs to be a pathway to citizenship for all undocumented people in the United States. Um, and right now, DACA is like the bare minimum, and not even not even that's being taken seriously right now. So, there needs to be a, a robust uh, bill by Congress and by Biden that will allow a pathway to citizenship for all undoc- all 11 million undocumented people. And right now it's not looking like they're doing anything about it. They've been, ever since Obama, they've been saying they're going to pass a path to citizenship for all, and there's been very little done. So, and if there's a Republican president in Congress in 2024 and a majority of the Supreme Court right wing, it's very, it's not looking very good right now.
0: Yeah. And I mean, uh, Barack Obama, someone who campaigned on, you know, uh, concepts of hope and change. But I know there's a wing of the immigration movement that refers to him as uh, the deporter in chief uh, uh, because of of these kinds of measures. And and on that note, Victor, um, it, it really feels like you know, like with a lot of issues that we can point to is that the Democrats uh, aren't really mounting much of a a fight back here. We don't really see a lot of movement um, from the Democrats in terms of getting these protections for undocumented people to the extent that you are uh, uh, describing. And so, I mean, it seems to me that uh, really having a a movement, a people struggle around this is going to be really important here as this uh, issue continues to heat up as it seems clear that those that are in power, I just don't seem terribly interested in, uh, uh, frankly, asserting the humanity of immigrants.
1: Right. No, yeah, I definitely agree. It's very sad. Um, a lot of my friends who are, have DACA, who are undocumented, they're in co- I'm in college, they're in college, they're about, they graduated, they're about to graduate, and they have no way to get a job, a career. Um, And if DACA gets taken away, they could, you know, they could face deportation and they have no way they're stuck in this in this bubble and they can't get out. Um, And it looks like the Democrats don't really care about it. You know, they every time for the midterms, whenever they're going to run for an election, they talk about, oh, we're going to do something. We're going to do something for the undocumented community. And they do nothing. Um, And it's been like that for a couple of decades. And unless we do struggle, we build a massive struggle on this topic. Nothing is going to get done. But it's very hard to build a struggle with undocumented people because, of course, they have that fear of deportation. They always have that fear, which I completely understand. I get that. But, you know, writing this article, like, you can't be afraid to speak the truth. You can't be afraid to speak out against these injustices.
0: Absolutely. And for those who are listening, the article that uh, Victor's referring to is entitled Another Attack on the DACA Program, Undocumented Workers Tired of Breadcrumbs, which you can check out at liberationnews.org. And uh, there's another aspect to this, Victor, when we talk about the immigration issue in the United States, that is. Rarely, if ever, really gets pointed out. Certainly, in terms of how um, the government and uh, the mainstream media presented, and. That's the uh, direct connection between U.S. foreign policy and really U.S. imperialism in what uh, uh, stokes immigration. Now, not that long ago, you know, we we saw a vice president, Kamala Harris, you know, talking about what she described as uh, the root causes of migration, as, you know, violence against the LGBTQ people and things like this, which without question uh, uh, is an issue. But it, I think the broad sort of aspect is this systemic thrust of imperialism that not only engages in uh, things like uh, dirty wars and uh, regime change, but, you know, also trade deals that have a serious impact on the workers of these countries that, that stokes uh, uh, migrant flows. And so in that way, it seems to me that a struggle to fight for immigration rights is also should have this component of uh, uh, critiquing and pointing to the central role of U.S. imperialism in this issue. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yes. Um, that's what my t- my uh, article talked about a lot. Um,
1: whenever conservatives in America talk about the immig- no, immigration has been a topic for decades. No, they never talk about the root, the real root causes of immigration, especially from Mexico and Central America, which most migrants come from. Uh, not everyone, but the, the majority, um, they don't talk about the way neoliberalism and Mexico completely destroyed the industries, especially the agricultural industries that caused massive, massive numbers of unemployment and forced these people, these migrants, to come to the United States, like, uh, quote-unquote, illegally because they had no other option. You know, they lost their jobs, they lost their homes. This happened to my parents. They lost, My dad lost his job, my, they lost their home, and they have no other way Survive until they come to the United States. And this is never talked about. You know, people benefit from this, uh, from these atrocities that happen in Mexico and Central America. Like CEOs of companies in America benefit from, these, from um, the uh, unemployment and the poverty that happened. And this is never talked about. Uh, Amer- American foreign policy in Central America in the 70s and 80s, uh, hundreds of thousands of people were murdered by right wing death squads funded and trained by the CIA, the Pentagon. And this is never talked about. And, you know, they talk about all these illegal aliens coming into our country from Central America. They never talk about, like, why are these home countries so devastated? Why is their economy so bad? Why is there poverty? Why is there violence? And it's, it's so crucial to talk about this because you cannot have a real conversation about immigration policy without talking about all of this.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I'm reminded of when Donald Trump was president and re- he referred to these kinds of countries as S Countries, which completely obfuscates, uh, like you're saying, the direct role that uh, imperialism plays in underdeveloping this country, these countries um, exploiting their labors and resources, and really just robbing them blind of uh, uh, their uh, ability to really prosper, which again is a big part of what stokes these uh, uh, migrant flows. And so, I mean, there's definitely uh, 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 a serious issue of racism and white supremacy when we talk about immigration as well. And and one thing I appreciated about your uh, piece, Victor, is, you know, you, 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 you frame uh, immigrants <clears throat> and you discuss them as workers. And I think that's important because, you know, when we talk about immigrants, this is not some uh, uh, amorphous blob of people. Uh, th- there's a class character. To immigration. Exactly. You know what I mean? And so the the whole issue of a uh, DACA and the broader issue of undocumented people in this country, I think regardless of status, is directly connected to that because, you know, immigrant workers just have a very, very tenuous uh, uh situation precisely because of their status. Now, there's this right-wing notion that, you know, immigrants come to this country and live high off the hog and, and steal jobs and resources from quote unquote quote real uh uh Americans, but in truth we're talking about a deeply exploited sector of the working class in this country, so how does that factor in uh, uh, to the condition of undocumented folks here in the u s
1: yes um I like to think about it as workers undocumented workers in America are doubly exploited first by being undocumented and then by being workers um so they really have and I've seen it because i uh, uh, many jobs I worked with when I was younger. I worked around undocumented workers, so I've seen this my entire life. Like they have, they get paid the bare minimum, and and they can't speak out against it. They cannot speak out because they fear deportation. Um, they work in the agricultural sector and the construction and uh, hotels and uh, as cooks. They work in so many jobs, very low pay, very hard, long hours, and. And it's something, and, and that idea, the right wing idea that they come here and they take their jobs, is so it's, it's, it's ridiculous, but also it's a way to divide the working class even more. so you have low uh, like um, working class Americans fighting against undocumented workers, and they need to realize that they're being pitted against each other for a specific reason. you know there's people of, um, the ruling class wants them to fight against each other, so they don't realize that they're both being exploited by the capitalist system and and there's a reason that the undocumented workers can't get legalization, so they can't organize, they can't form unions. And this is so crucial to keeping them in the shadows so they can't, they can't speak out against the injustices, against the working conditions. And so when we're talking about the about undocumented uh, workers, we need to think about them as, as, as what they are. They are workers, and they deserve rights that any other worker has.
0: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I want to connect the plight of immigrant workers, Victor, to uh, the overall plight of poor working and oppressed people here in the United States, because there's another element of this that I often see in terms of how people conceive of the immigration issue in the U.S., and that's this concept of, you know, good immigrant, bad immigrant, based on uh, who who came to the U.S. the quote-unquote right way or the quote-unquote wrong way, which, I mean, to me, always just felt like a serious just kind of divide uh, uh, and conquer tactic, which really misses the point. And we were talking Talking a little earlier about the importance of, you know, a movement to really fight for uh, the rights of undocumented people. And it seems to me that we really have to connect these issues um, to a lot of other oppressing uh, issues facing this country and the world right now in terms of uh, workers' rights and the struggle against white supremacy and basic democratic rights and all these sorts of things. I mean, it really does feel like we have to build a, a, a mass movement uh, led by uh, the poor working and oppressed, uh, both for, uh, the rights of undocumented folks and the rights of the, the poor working and oppressed in general.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, I really do believe that's what we need, a mass struggle. That's the only way we get anything done in this country through mass struggle. Um, and that's exactly what I plan to be a part of what I'm doing right now. And, uh, you know, talking to like, uh, cause I know a lot of undocumented people, you know, talking to them, talking to their families about like they deserve so much more than they're getting. And when being undocumented in America, you're you're expected to be grateful for the bare minimum, for the breadcrumbs mm. that this country throws at you. And that that pisses me off so much. We're expected to be, be like, take what you get and shut up. That's exactly what because you deserve. You're, you're illegal. You deserve nothing. But, you know, you're lucky to even like, be here. Uh, so I really want to get out of that mindset. That, you know, undocumented people just deserve whatever they get. Uh, They deserve whatever they get. Um, No, we deserve so much more. We're human beings. We deserve every right that a citizen has. Um,
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I I really, really appreciate you uh, uh, sharing that because – it's absolutely true that dehumanization is just a core aspect of how immigrants and undocumented people are treated in this country. And I would argue that that uh, stems from the inhuman character of the capitalist system itself. And as such, yeah. uh, when we talk about that struggle, I think a uh, part of it also has to keep an eye on overturning this capitalist system for a more human-centered society. But we thank you so much, Victor, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. we move to a break here on by... Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back, so please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: deepening crisis inside of Haiti. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Dr. Jamima Pierre, Haiti America's coordinator for the Black Alliance for Peace. Dr. Pierre, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Thanks so much for having
0: me. My pleasure. Absolutely. And Dr. Pierre, uh, the de facto leader of Haiti, uh, Prime Minister uh, Dr. Ariel Henry, is calling for foreign intervention in the country, Um, uh, you know, from his word, basically uh, talking about, uh, uh, you know, humanitarian issues in the country, saying that uh, there's problems with criminal gangs and uh, things like this. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, there continue to be serious and large uh, mass protests from the people of Haiti um, calling for uh, Dr. Ariel Henry to step down. And uh, we've been seeing these protests, you know, for weeks in terms of this latest iteration. But I mean, for me, I see it sort of as part and parcel of protests we've been seeing um, for at least four years, you know, going back to, you know, the protest around the, the theft of uh, Petro Caribe funds from then uh, President um, Jovenel Moïse. But I don't want to get too deep into that. I, I was really just wanting to know, uh, Dr. Pierre, sort of your top line thoughts about uh, Dr. Ariel Henri's call for foreign military intervention in Haiti, something that has not uh, uh, gone well for the people of that country in the past. And what do you think is really at play here?
3: Well, what's at play is the fact that Ariel Henri is de facto. So the answer is in your question. He's not the legitimate Leader of Haiti, he was imposed on Haiti by the core group, um, a group of non-Haitian Western um, um, or, or, or organization um, that run that make all the decisions in Haiti. And so, he was told by his OAS and core group handlers to make a formal request for the UN. And because people don't know what's been going on in Haiti the past twenty years under this occupation. Um, they will go along with it and say that this leader is calling for an intervention. And we have to know that Ayo Henry was imposed, that he doesn't make any decision for for Haitians, and that his call is illegitimate. And he's basically, you know, uh, Haitians are joking that, you know, this is the, a, a call for intervention to protect Ayo more than anything from the people. Um, and, you know, and what, in this language of gangs, which feeds, feeds into the stereotypes of you know these black Haitians as black and savage, really is used to hide the fact that people have been protesting a rising inflation, which is at thirty percent, and and also the fact that Ayo Henry was told to remove fuel subsidies um um from um for for the Haitian people which doubled almost tripled um their gas and diesel prices and so that's really what's going on that it's the it's the it's the it's the white rulers of Haiti making these decisions and putting it under Ayo Henry in order to hide the continued exploitation of, of the people
0: Definitely. And, you know, uh, well, actually, I actually want to reiterate what you just said, because this is a this is a fundamental point that is, uh, frankly, lost on, I think, a lot of people in the United States because we just don't hear it from either uh, the government or the mainstream uh, corporate press. And that's the fact that Ariel Henry is not the choice of the people of Haiti. His leadership is not the result of any democratic process. He is the choice of the core group. He is the choice of the organization of American states and he is the choice of uh Washington. And uh in that way I-, I was hoping you could sort of break down this whole issue that we read and hear a lot about in terms of uh you know the 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 gangs the, these armed groups of uh, young men in Haiti and and what their role uh, uh, actually is, because, I mean, from the outside looking in, it really does seem like Ariel Henry doesn't have much control over what's uh, uh, happening inside Haiti. I mean, he really I mean, it he really just gives off big puppet vibes, uh, uh, to be honest, just sort of a face to, to Western power. And so, I mean, from your perspective, Dr. Pierre, what is the reality of these armed groups in Haiti and, and uh, uh, how they factor into this issue?
3: Right. So there's a long history of, um, you know, I have to give a plug. The Black Agenda Report has a special Haiti issue today. Um, I, I would really suggest people go and check it out. And, and one of the main articles is about the white, um, the white warlords with the, the elite, the oligarchy, the light skin and white families who basically control Haiti. And and that's very much linked to the arming of young men because they own the ports. You know, there are like five or six families. Who own the major ports? The pri- ports are privatized, and that's the only way you have guns coming through the country. And so they've always they've always used armed poor, armed men to go carry out their crimes against their own business, you know, competitors. Um, in fact, one of the key um, uh, um, uh, family member, um, Clifford Brent, Brent is one of the key families in Haiti. He was the first one to actually be arrested because he had a kidna- kidnapping ring where they would kidnap. Uh, children um, of the oligarch or upper middle class people and get ransom and so they would arm young men to go ahead and do that and so that's always been the case that that these oligarchs arm young men different factions and um in the in haiti in order to get what they need you've also have i want your listeners to also remember these are poor young men when you see them they're wearing flip-flops and raggedy shorts and so on and so forth, but carrying around. Thousands of dollars worth of ammunition and guns, and so you have to ask yourself where the guns are coming from, and they they're coming from from these families. But also, there's a whole history of the U.S., Canada, the Dominican Republic, um, and France arming um, so-called paramilitary groups and um, to go and 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 wreak havoc. And so, under during the Aristide presidency, what really um, 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 you know gave the Westerners uh, a, a reason to invade was to say what well, these groups are. Are about to attack the Port-au-Prince, even though they're the ones that funded and armed these ragtag paramilitaries to go into the into the country into the countryside and recapture, and then try to march onto Port-au-Prince. And so, so the so-called gang problem is is a problem that is created so so that it can give a pretext um, for um, intervention, continued intervention and control of Haiti. And so, we have to to recognize that. And it's not to say that there isn't a problem with young armed young men going around. Killing some people on behalf of these elites, but there's also a major protest that's going on in this eighth week of thousands and thousands of Haitians in every single major city of Haiti that that they're trying to hide by using the language of gangs. And the language of gangs, I have to say again, works because they see these Black people as savages.
0: Absolutely, and you know, whenever you know, I read or consider this issue of the armed groups in Haiti. I mean, I immediately think of a similar situation here in the United States, because how is it that these uh, uh, expensive, high-powered weapons find themselves in the hands of uh, young people in these poor and oppressed communities in places like, you know, Jacksonville, Florida, or Miami, Florida, or Chicago, or any number of uh, uh, places that we could point to. It's often said. Here in the U.S., that you know th- there aren't there aren't gun factories in in these neighborhoods, right? And then looking at Haiti, which as it's often called uh, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, but yet no one's asking the questions about where these guns are coming from, and that makes me want to dig uh, more into uh, an issue that you raised a moment ago, Doctor Pierre, in terms of uh, the 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 white or and light skinned and uh, non black uh, ruling families of Haiti, and I try to bring this up whenever we. Talk about Haiti because um, in in the popular. Conception of Haiti and its issues—they're invisible, right? So the face of Haiti's issues is always black. Uh, going back into that that racist trope of you know the savages not being able to govern themselves—that that is uh, such a big part of uh, what we're seeing. And you know, I'm thinking of people like uh, uh, Reginald Bulos, who's just who, who's the one I'm most familiar with, but he's just one of many. So I was hoping you could sort of tell us more uh, about these families and the role that they play in the exploitation of Haiti.
3: Yeah. And so, you know, Jacques Afrique, uh, who, who's our, our, writer for this week about this, this oligarchy. It is these, these ancestors we call the white oligarchs, but they're a mixed race, white, um, light skinned elite, um, that came into the island in the late 1800s as refugees from Syria, Lebanon, and later, um, after World War II as European refugees of Jewish heritage. Um, so, they strategically marry with light skinned Haitians. They've been in Haiti for a long time. They collude with the elites in US, Canada, Europe. A lot of them they're transnational elites. A lot of them have citizenship. Um, you know, in other places, so for example, Biggio, one of the the big Italian, the richest man in, in the Caribbean, the billionaire, you know, he has, um, I think, citizenship, I think, in Israel. Right. And so you have the Brent family, the Accra family, the Mabzen family, the Mez family, the Apaid family. These are the people that are behind all the all the uh, all the destitution that you see that's happening. They're the ones that were against the raising of the minimum wage in Haiti. Um, and uh, and they're the ones that are continuously used to they're they're the ones that basically exploit the poor people um, to 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 get rich. And so part of that, they know this. they know that they keep th- these people down. They're the ones that have the fa- um, the, the factories. In fact, you know, even Jovenel Moïse, who supposedly was against them, you know gave out you know thousands of acres of land in the middle of 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 of, Port of, of, of Haiti. Um, to one of these family members so that they can um, grow stevia for Coca-Cola, right? <laughs> so mm-hmm. so part of that is you don't get to see these elites, these white people who actually are behind the continued explanation, who work as the middlemen um, for the, the, the white folks. And then when the white folks come, and this was very clear after the earthquake, because these, you know, a lot of them were also land rich and cash poor. And they made a big come up after the earthquake because what the white folks come, they come in, and they only engage these, this oligarchy and give them all, you know, the little bit of contracts that Haitians got were to this oligarchy, to these people. And they're the ones, because they have these connections with Bill Clinton and all these others that they, they're able to access that. But because of the racism in how Haiti is reported, you never hear about this economic, economically powerful group of oligarchs that really run the show in Haiti and that, that, that work with the white the, the white rulers, you know, Canada, France, uh, and the U.S., to keep um, poor, dark-skinned Haitians down.
0: And I appreciate you breaking that down because— When Americans crack the lid or twist the top on their, you know, Coca-Colas and uh, drink this, you know, supposedly healthy alternative, uh, uh, um, you know, artificial sweetener, we have no idea about how that's directly connected to the exploitation and uh, uh, underdevelopment of uh, countries like Haiti. And and I wanted to uh, sort of drill down also in— How these um, other outside institutions are also pushing for uh, military intervention, this foreign intervention into Haiti, Uh, namely the Organization of American States, the OAS, under uh, Luis Almagro, who recently said that Haiti must, quote, request urgent assistance from the international community to help resolve security crises, determine the characteristics of an international security force. Now, Luis Almagro. This is a cat who was kicked out of his own political party, and who all, always supports uh, regime change efforts and coups. Basically, always supporting um, uh, U.S. imperialism in the hemisphere through the OAS. I mean, I'm reminded of uh, Fidel Castro, who I believe called the OAS. You know, the, the Yankee Ministry of Colonies. A well, th- th- yeah, th- th- <laughs> th- these are the these are the politics that Almagro uh, uh, represents, and so. When we look at the OAS and uh, uh, the core group, how is it that they factor into uh, the growing crisis in Haiti as well?
3: Right. And so, you know, what I always say, the real gangs of Haiti are the core group, the OAS, the U.S., Canada, France, and the European Union. Those are the gangs that we should be kicking out and destroying in Haiti. Now, OAS is a member of the core group, right, Um, has a representative of the core group. But OAS has had an, unlike the core group, is really um, in no, you know, the fact that Haiti is a currently a de facto colony administered by a, a foreign white rulers um, is in no small part because of the OAS. You know, OAS has interfered um, against its charter, right? OAS has always been used as, uh, as uh, in the region. As you know, the you know the 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 enforcer of U.S. rule in the region, and so you know from the very beginning. For example, it kicked off it kicked out Cuba. It didn't allow Cuba to participate, and it makes all these decisions. And so, if you look at the bra- just two decades of meddling in Haiti, you see in 2010 after the, the earthquake, the U.S. paid for forcing these elections on, to Haiti, which is where you get um, the uh, so-called election of Michel Martelly. Um, The OAS came in and basically, you know, uh, sent an expert electoral verification team, supposedly, right, composed of seven members, six of them were from Western countries, you know, U.S., France, Canada, and it basically backed an election result that was actually flawed, where the first round Michel Martelly did not win, and then Hillary Clinton forced the change and removed um, the, 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 the person in the first round and put Martelly for the second round as if he had won. And the OAS um, verification team basically allowed that. It discarded votes, changed the results to ensure that Martelly came into second place. The OAS stroke st- would strike again um, in 2015 and 2016 um, for the so-called election of Jovenel Moïse. You know, it was like a brazen intervention. Um, by the OAS, um, basically did, you know, it It created these sham elections where everyone knew that there were ballot stuffing. They changed the numbers. They counted some things and they didn't count others. Mm-hmm. And so this is, this is what the OAS has done. It basically mm-hmm. verified in two elections where less than 20% of the people came in and it came in and said, because we're the OAS, we can verify and these are good. And it allowed ballot stuffing, it changed results and so on. So tell me, if this is not a colonial power in Haiti. And the only reason the OAS has so much power is because it's linked to the US and the core group. And, and what I always say, and I, and I hate to keep going on, but what I always say is that we cannot free the world if we don't dismantle the entire Western political global structure that run us. The UN is run by the US, You know, the OAS, the IMF, the World Bank, all these white supremacist Western structures are here to keep us down. And until we challenge them from the top down, we can't, we won't be free. And so the OAS is just one of these things. And with Amagro and his right-wing self is actually under investigations for misconduct, but he's using Haiti as a cover um, to run away from his own problems.
0: Yeah. And uh, first, I want to say you, you should always feel comfortable uh, going on like that, uh, by any means necessary. <laughs> we, we, we love that. A couple of quick things I want to note to our listeners. If you want to see that piece from the Black Alliance for Peace that Dr. Pierre mentioned earlier, you can check it out at BlackAllianceForPeace.com. And that article from uh, Jeta, uh, uh, Jafrika Ayati entitled To Solve the Crisis Permanently Forced the U.S. to Stop Backing Notorious White Warlords in Haiti, you can check out in Black Agenda Report. And, you know, what all of this tells me, Dr. Pierre, is basically what you often say when it comes to this issue is that Haiti has an imperialism problem. That is its issue and, and has been quite literally for uh, centuries. Right. You know, from from the time that uh, Haiti had the audacity to throw off the shackles of their slave masters. And so for those of us in the United States, I I, I feel that we have a particular duty being here in um, the heart of a uh, uh, world imperialism to uh, struggle against this and to uh, hold our own government accountable for its ongoing role. In the devastation of Haiti, the violation of its sovereignty, the scuttling of its democratic processes and just the, the, the utter dehumanization of this people. We do have a responsibility, I think, to uh, uh, build a movement strong enough uh, uh, to really fight this um, as part of our ongoing uh, work in that way.
3: I agree. And and I think, you know, uh, some leftists got mad at me because I published a piece a couple of weeks ago saying that, you know, the leftism of the Americas collapses at the door of Haitian sovereignty. And and I, I stand by that. Right. Because part of that is there's so many ways that the so-called left in the U.S. and the Americas can give platitudes and say, oh, we need to stand with Haiti, but really don't get to the core of the problem, which is this imperialist problem where you have constant intervention. And 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 um, um, uh, assault of on, on its sovereignty by these people. And I think you can say, oh yeah, Haiti. You know, the, the, the Haitian Revolution is great. Um, you know, Haiti saved the region. You know, funded Simón Bolívar. Well, at and well, at the same time, you can call for you know um, uh, the the end of the blockade against Cuba, the imperialist machinations against Nicaragua, and so on and so forth. But you can't call out AMLO from Mexico or you know Brazil which part- which continue to participate with the OAS and the UN in snuffing out Haitian sovereignty so we have a responsibility to really especially among the left to go ahead and really make these make these calls demand that OAS leave leave Haiti alone and CARICOM which is the Caribbean community to call them out these are the black and brown countries of the Caribbean around Haiti which articulate the same racist talking points as the west and so we need to really point out you know that Haiti should not be exceptionalized when it comes to our calls um, against imperialism, and and, you know, and that's something I will always hold the left here and the Americas accountable to because they have to stand up for Haiti the way they stand up for these other countries in the in the region.
0: Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. Pierre, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. we move to a break here, on by any means necessary, on Radio Sputnik and Watch NDC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By any means necessary.
0: Welcome back And today we're talking about avoiding nuclear disaster concerning the war in Ukraine. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by David Swanson, an activist, journalist, radio host, executive director of World Beyond War, and author of the book Leaving World War II Behind. David, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Sean. Great to be here. Absolutely. And, uh, David, you recently published a piece uh, on Counterpunch.org entitled What's worse than risking nuclear apocalypse? And I wanted to read just uh, the first couple of uh, paragraphs of that, just so folks can get a sense of the thrust of it, because I think it's a, a really good uh, question that you framed pretty well. You said, what is worse than risking the obliteration of life on Earth through nuclear war and the creation of a nuclear winner? What is more important than protecting the world from the climate collapse on fast forward that would be a nuclear Nuclear apocalypse. Do you want me to say courage or goodness or freedom or standing up to Putin? I won't do it. The obvious answer is the right one nothing. Nothing is more important than preserving life. The dead have very little freedom and do practically no standing up to Putin. And, and I appreciate the way that you, you frame this, David, because, I mean, you know, the the, the potential for a nuclear conflict, open nuclear conflict between the United States and Russia, I think is increasing as things escalate in uh, uh, the war in Ukraine, particularly here lately following uh, the bombing of the bridge in Crimea, which itself triggered a series of Russian attacks in uh, uh, different regions in Ukraine. And uh, but it's not it's like we don't feel that urgency uh, in the United States. And uh, I mean, personally, I attributed both to how the whole situation is framed both by uh, the government and the mainstream press. But uh, that very issue of uh, the prospect of nuclear conflict and what it means to humanity just uh, uh, doesn't seem to be uh, high in people's awareness. And so uh, I was hoping you could sort of, you know, break down, you know, just how serious uh, it is, particularly in this moment as things continue to intensify.
4: Yeah, it is incredible to me that we've gone in just about 40 years from widespread fear and concern and awareness and activism around the danger of nuclear apocalypse without the, this level of risk of actual nuclear apocalypse, to the reverse, to the the risk being the highest it's ever been, at least apart from uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis and other particular incidents uh, of the sort, uh, and general blissful obliviousness. Uh, I, I mean, when you have the President of the United States suggest that there's a serious risk of nuclear armageddon and i go on twitter and all the top uh subjects are, are about sports you know and and armageddon you know breaks into the top 20 for some hours and then it's gone again i i, I look this morning and paul krugman of the new york times is tweeting about how the very most important issue in the world is getting tough on China in a so called trade war, you know, throwing around the word war as if there weren't real wars. Uh, and it, it, it's incredible to me. Uh, I mean, there have been numerous mishaps and accidents and misunderstandings uh, that have nearly killed us all. Uh, and there have been conflicts like the Cuban Missile Crisis, where If Eisenhower had had a third term or Nixon had beat Kennedy, I never would have been born. You know, and and we don't and we don't learn and we don't go back and say, why did we let it get so close? Uh, You know, and and why did Kennedy have to secretly take missiles out of Europe, whereas uh, Khrushchev had to publicly take missiles out of of Cuba? That, That is Kennedy. Preserving life on Earth was such a shameful thing he had to do it secretly uh, and now it 's such a shameful thing. Uh, there may be no willingness to do it at all uh, and you have you have u s public opinion polls where you have significantly higher numbers of people worried about a nuclear apocalypse out of the war in Ukraine than willing to condone any sort of negotiation or compromise to end the war in ukraine what what does it mean you know and 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 this this article I wrote uh, that you quoted from uh I, I wrote after a, a a group of us sent a letter to the Washington Post asking them if they could allow you know support for a ceasefire and negotiations to have any Space in their newspaper, and they said, Well, we can't meet with you, but you can send us an op ed. So I sent them that op ed, and they said, No, we can't print it. And they just went on with articles, editorials, op eds pushing war and escalation. Uh, and as far as I know, not a single word in support of negotiations, even though you have, you know, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and, you know, war mad warmongers like Henry Kissinger and You know, uh, and dozens of nations around the globe saying, let's have a ceasefire and negotiations. Uh, It's not acceptable in most U.S. media outlets.
0: Yeah. And it points to me. To what is a pretty deep issue, and frankly a dangerous one, as we see here in the United States, because for you know, for you, you know, and your group, uh, a group of peace activists, to want to publish an op-ed in uh, what is perhaps the number two newspaper in all of the United States, simply calling for a ceasefire and negotiations, to me seems uh, eminently reasonable. But the environment in the U.S. as it concern as it concerns The war in Ukraine is is just so poisonous. And it seems that if you suggest that the U.S. uh, and NATO have any culpability in this, well, you know, you're accused of, you know, being a a worshipful servant or whatever of the Kremlin or of Vladimir Putin. And, you know, we've had people with, uh, you know, a number of different analyses of the war in Ukraine here on the show. And, David, I know, you know, you've been uh, pretty critical of uh, the Russian government and its role in the war in Ukraine. Uh, following the invasion. But the fact that uh, the analysis for you doesn't begin and end there renders it illegitimate in the popular consciousness of the United States. So from your perspective, and as someone who has been in this movement for a long time, how did it come to be that peace became so unpopular here?
4: Yeah, it's remarkable that I went on uh, Russia TV when the U.S. government still allowed Russia TV to be around here numerous times and criticized both sides of the war, uh, and was still back on. Whereas, you know, when I criticized a U.S. war on MSNBC once, I was never heard from again and and presumably never will be right um you know in in my view there's there's infinite blame to go around uh and there's plenty for Russia and there's plenty for the United States and nato and ukraine uh but it's it, that's not you can't say that uh and the reason you can't say that uh is war thinking when when you're engaged in war thinking. You can only say good about one side and you can only say bad about the other, uh, whether that corresponds with the facts or not. Uh, and, And so you can't say anything other than all out support. For the Ukrainian side against the Russian side. Uh, and, you know, if The Washington Post doesn't think I write a good op-ed, there is no way in the world that they're not capable of themselves writing or getting someone to write an op-ed uh, that even hints at support for uh, negotiations. Now I sent them a poll. I, I, in my original draft of an op-ed and then I took it out and they still didn't care. Uh, I, I cited polling that suggested broad support in the United States for negotiation and compromise. Uh, of course, polls differ dramatically depending on how they're asked and so forth. Uh, and they came back and showed me, you know, polls that show limited support in the United States for negotiating, but if If you can't even if you can't allow one sentence in your newspaper uh how are people going to tell pollsters they support it uh, and if you have a significant minority supporting it, shouldn't that be discussed in the public fora of a country that is you know shipping boatloads of weapons in the name of democracy? Uh, You know, but this is this is what happens when there's a war. There are people who I say one critical word against Russia and they denounce me as an evil traitor. And I'm in the employ of NATO and I must be taking money from NATO. And just the reverse, I say one critical word against NATO and I'm denounced as a Putin lover. You know, I I mean, this this artist I know in Australia put up this big mural on a wall in Melbourne of a Russian and Ukrainian soldier hugging each other, uh, and it made news around the world that the local Ukrainian community was traumatized and outraged uh, by hugging. <laughs> and we put the same mural up on a billboard in Washington, D.C., and are putting it up in Brussels in front of NATO headquarters, if they'll take our money, and would put it up in Moscow if there were any way to do it. Because it's incredible that people should be offended by hugging and not by killing. Uh, but this is what war thinking does to you.
0: Definitely, definitely. And, you know, I, I wonder also, David, how you sort of see this or if you see this, um, because for me, I-, I definitely see this as a consequence of. Of the normalization of nonstop war uh, in the United States, in terms of how war over you know uh, uh, you know a number of years here has sort of been reframed as you know a humanitarian intervention or all these sorts of things, we we, we began to see this uh, uh, trying to cast war as noble and something that's you know helpful to uh, the country in question or, you know, somehow virtuous or beneficial to the people of the United States. And, you know, these are the narratives we hear from the government. Absolutely. It trickles down to the the, the corporate press that takes excuse from uh, that same government. And I can't help but feel like that's what Uh, or at least a factor, uh, you know, into this uh, uh, frankly bizarre uh, anti-peace environment that we find ourselves in in uh, the U.S. uh, at this point. And so I'm wondering, how do you see? And if you think that's sort of a a part and parcel of it, because when you're in a situation where you have a nation of people, uh, uh, the U.S., who are uh, supporting policies and measures that could very well signal their own destruction in that, if you Humanity, I think it's a, a serious commentary on the kind of information and, frankly, propaganda that people are subject to here.
4: Absolutely. I, I mean, you, you couldn't have what's happening now be happening if you were starting from scratch without a permanent war machinery, uh, standing military, uh, the, the weapons capacity to be just on a normal, routine basis, year in and year out, the top weapons supplier to the world, to the dictatorships, the democracies, everyone else. Uh, you know, the, the U.S. has now shipped to Ukraine for free uh, with very little change in its industrial structure, uh, you know, weapons worth just about the, the annual military spending of Russia uh, and without, you know, batting an eye. Uh, and, and And it's been normalized that war is something that just goes on and it goes on far away and it doesn't impact you. Now, of course, a nuclear winter will impact you. Of course, the environmental destruction of the war impacts you. Of course, the loss of all that money, a little fraction of which could transform U.S. society, impacts you. Of course, the war as the impediment to the absolutely urgently needed global cooperation on climate and ecosystems and immigration and poverty and homelessness and disease epidemics impacts you. But you're supposed to not think so, or you're supposed to think, again, something else is more important. Uh, you know, I saw, uh, I, I saw this, you know, I mean, I have no use for billionaires whatsoever. But when Elon Musk has a peace plan, and then there's a story that before he wrote his peace plan, he had talked to Putin. The news story isn't. That Putin may be open to a peace plan. It's that Elon Musk is a dirty little traitor. And that's more important, uh, than the possibility of peace. Uh, <laughs> you know, that, then we, we learned that this war that's not a U.S. war has the CIA in Ukraine, has the U.S. special forces in Ukraine. Nothing special about them. Bigger. They're bigger than most nations' entire militaries. Uh, and so, yeah, we're told it's normal. We're also told it's humanitarian. Uh, we're told that it isn't even a war. If it's Russia's war, the fighting the war on the other side isn't even war making. It's just doing the only possible thing uh, to counter the Russian war making. Uh, and people in Ukraine are digging holes. They're making fallout shelters to survive an extra week. And the president of the United States can't stop blocking negotiations so we could all survive some extra millennia. Uh, it's it's the priorities are just that out of whack
0: yeah, and I'm wondering what you think about the prospects for peace in this war at this point David uh, both the Russian and Ukrainian governments have uh, uh, basically said or at least to my understanding uh, that you know one is not uh, really interested in negotiations uh, uh, with each other at this point I feel like there were opportunities for this uh, earlier on which you know seem to have been scuttled by uh, Washington and the UK I mean personally I-, I tend to think that it's not impossible though I do think it'll be quite difficult at this juncture. Uh, but how are you seeing uh, that whole issue at this point?
4: Well, what's possible and what's likely are two completely different things, right? Sure. We have sure. an indication of willingness uh, by the U.S. government, the Ukrainian government, or, uh, you know, it, for – long periods, the Russian government. Uh, there have been moments when the Russian government seemed much more open to negotiations. Uh, and and of course, by the standard of the Ukrainian president publicly announcing he will never negotiate anything, uh, the Russian government is more open than that. But Uh, You know, what's possible? I I mean, my God, the U.S. could uh, could cut off the flow of weapons or threaten to uh, could propose uh, a compromise and suggest a willingness to let an independent uh, global group uh, help decide it uh, could come out in support of the rule of law and the International Criminal Court even handedly. Uh, with legal sanctions to be expected against uh, those engaging in war crimes on both sides, uh, which would be, uh, you know, a motivation to scale back and, and end rather than to continue and conquer and win, and win, could, could talk honestly about the prospects of this going on and on and on rather than promising imminent total victory month after month after month. Could, could offer humanitarian aid, actual aid, not weapons, uh, to those willing to make peace. Uh, I mean, there are all kinds of things that could be done, uh, that could change the positions of the Ukrainian and Russian governments. Uh, are they about to be done in the absence of a new mass mobilization uh, of, uh, of the public of this country and the world? Um, I, don't, I don't see any reason to predict that.
0: Yeah, I tend to agree. I think in a moment like this, we absolutely do need a mass mobilization, the development of a mass movement uh, uh, demanding uh, peace and demanding uh, an end to war, quite literally, for the sake of humanity. Well, we thank you so much, David, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Wednesday, October 12, 2022. And of course, in twenty minutes, you'll be able to give us a call, Hibret, by any means necessary, to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you, and at that time, you'll be able to give us a ring at two zero two five two one one three two zero. That's two zero two five two one one three two zero. Our reporters are standing by. Can also check us out on Sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. Can also hear our show on Sputnik.mave.digital. That's Sputnik.mave.digital. You can follow us on social media, Facebook and Twitter.com slash BAM Necessary. And as always, we are streaming live on rumble.com slash C as in cat slash BAM Necessary. But wherever you are in this world, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. And we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Ted Rawl, an award-winning editorial cartoonist and columnist and author of the graphic novel, The Stringer. Ted, thanks so much for joining us.
5: Thanks for having me, John.
0: Absolutely. and. Ted, uh, here recently, uh, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen uh, called on the allies of the U.S. government to speed up uh, their financial aid to Ukraine. Uh, while standing alongside her Ukrainian counterpart, Sergei Marchenko, she said, quote, We are calling on our partners and allies to join us by swiftly dispersing their existing commitments to Ukraine and by stepping up in doing more, adding that the U.S. will begin, quote, to provide the Ukrainian government in the coming weeks with the four point five billion dollars in budget assistance passed by Congress on September 30th. And this package was part of a a larger 12.3 billion dollar age package to Ukraine, according to reporting by the Kiev Post. And the reason why I uh, start with this, Ted, is that, you know, on the show, we've been sort of discussing the pretty muted response uh, from the people of the United States To the increasingly dangerous uh, uh, prospect of open nuclear conflict uh, with. Uh, between the United States and Russia, uh, uh, something that uh, Biden himself uh, has been warning about uh, a nuclear Armageddon. Now, of course, you know, from for, from our position, we maintain that it was the U.S. and, and NATO that, that really instigated this. But the potential there, I should say the implications, uh, could be devastating for not only the people of the U.S., Russia, and Ukraine, but uh, the world. And uh, we, we've been talking on the show about the role Role that the media plays in that. that uh, there really isn't a, a, a sense of urgency, I would say in uh, a lot of the the, the corporate press, here in this country as it is clearly sort of taking excuse and following the line uh, of uh, the White House, you know what I mean? And so I feel like this one-sided coverage has, uh, I mean, you know, for a long time and perhaps always it's been uh, sycophantic and, you know, sympathetic to the whims of U.S. imperialism. But given uh, uh, the potential for catastrophe here, I mean, it seems that the 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 corporate press here in the U.S. is complicit in the danger of our time by uh, completely mischaracterizing it, and in some parts are uh, just out and out lying about uh, the situation as it pertains to the war in Ukraine. And certainly it hasn't done its job in educating uh, the American people about the context of the conflict, because, you know, in, in the political mainstream discourse, you're not allowed to talk about anything that happened before September 24th nor are you uh, allowed to suggest that anyone besides Vladimir Putin is, uh, uh, has any culpability in this war. You know what I mean? And so, you know, as someone who is a journalist has been in this industry for a long time, and I think has seen uh, the worst of it in some ways, uh, what do you make of this kind of one sided uh, uh, coverage in the mainstream media in in the U S and how do you see it as contributing to uh, what I see at least as the deepening of, uh, social and political crisis here in the U S
5: well, Shauna, I mean, I, I, I love the way you see you uh, teed up the question because I, uh, I think we see things the same way. Uh, exactly on this point, um, it is incredibly reckless on the part of the media to sort of conduct business as usual uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, warmongering, propaganda, in favor of the U.S. government and its proxies, in this case, Ukraine, um, it is, you know, in, in the, it, it, when they did the same thing, and they, they always do do the same thing, uh, they've done it, you know, kind of in comically lopsided conflicts, like the U.S. Invade, invasion of the tiny Caribbean island of Grenada, where the media kind of portrayed Grenada as this socialist exporter of, uh, uh, literally terrorism, as uh, President Ronald Reagan said at the time. But the fact is that, you know, the U.S. was go- was going to and did conquer and overthrow the government of Grenada very easily. Grenada didn't have the ability to prevent that from happening. They, they were not a nuclear power. There wasn't really much at stake except for the people of Grenada. And I don't mean to say that that's a small thing. I mean, what that, that invasion was illegal, imperialist, colonialist, and disgusting. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's it certainly the stakes for the world, as you say, uh, just weren't really there. Uh, in this particular case, you know, they're, they're acting as if they're making propaganda against Saddam Hussein or the Taliban or any other U.S. adversary. But it's different when you're talking about uh, you know w- when there's nuclear tensions that are being ratcheted up by a president who clearly doesn't really seem to know that it's important to bring this in for a soft landing. I mean, I was thinking about the Cuban Missile Crisis lately, and you know I mean from all of his rabid anti-communism, President John F. Kennedy did you know he did use uh, more temperate tones, certainly and and more temperate uh, rhetoric when communicating with the American people throughout the crisis, and most importantly, was on the phone with Premier Khrushchev uh, every day, sometimes several times, uh, just to say, like, you know, hey, listen, you know, we don't want this to go to DEF CON four, and neither do you, right? And of course, you know, his uh, Soviet counterpart agreed. You know, no, no, we're we're going to solve this. Uh, let's hold each other's hands and let's bring this in, and and they did solve it, right? Um, Clearly, I don't think there's any communications happening between Presidents Biden and Putin uh, behind uh, back channels. I hope there are, but I doubt it. It doesn't sound like it. Uh, there's, and Biden himself is, uh, you know, make, talking about Armageddon, which is just beyond, you know, just uh, it's terrifying. I mean, he's, he's supposed to be calming the situation, not heating it up, but I, I think he's just you know, because of his mental state, he doesn't, doesn't seem to know how to do anything else. So the media is playing its role, and it is – I think they don't really understand just that, that this is not business as usual. I mean, what this really calls for more than usual is – I mean, and one would want them to do this all the time – is to, you know, try to try to uh, report this, this situation, this crisis uh, from – from really all points of view, and certainly there's nothing wrong with them uh, relating the Ukrainian point of view, but the Russian point of view is completely absent from uh, the from the coverage. So they've what they've done is they've created a cartoonish, uh, you know, uh, and normally I like cartoons, but they've created a cartoonish scenario uh, where there's this dastardly villain Vladimir Putin, who's somewhat of a madman, who is. Uh, out to invade. Uh, He's he's the new Hitler, wants to invade uh, Eastern Europe. The Baltics are scared. Everyone's going to join NATO. Uh, You know, we all have to pull together for Ukraine. Um, You know, I mean, that's not how it went. And when I talk to even the most fervent uh, supporters of Ukraine among my friends and colleagues, uh, you know, I will remind them that there is no world in which the United States would not behave exactly the same as Russia is behaving if it were in the same situation. And by that, I mean um, Canada or Mexico, which shares a long border with the United States, just decides to uh, join an anti-U.S. military alliance like the Warsaw Pact during the Cold War. It decides to, uh, it it has, uh, you know, a, a Nazi component in its military. It is Uh, it overthrows the democratically elected prime minister or president uh, that was that had good relations with the United States. I guarantee you the United States invades and goes all the way to Ottawa or Mexico City if it can. No question. I mean, and whenever I brought up this point to say that Russia is not doing anything that the U.S. would not do in the same situation or the same position, nobody has anything to say about that you know they, they know it's true it is true and so why is that perspective never reflected in the media and it can't be you know i mean i have a syndicated column i have a syndicated cartoon i send these out to uh, many many hundreds of newspapers every week but you're not going to get and i do uh, write about this point of view but it it won't appear in anything other than a few uh, alternative Uh, publications of which there are fewer and fewer, because it's just a message that's not allowable. And I'm not talking just about Ted Rawls' message. I mean, any message that is along that line, like, hey, try to see this from the Russian point of view. You got invaded in World War II in the largest land invasion of all time. You lost 25 million people across that border. You know, you're worried about that border. You should be worried about that border. You have an enemy state on that border. That's gotta. That's gotta concern you. You know, I mean, that's just basic reporting and analysis, and it's nowhere to be found. And it's be it's so reckless because, uh, you know, everything that's at stake. I mean, even the talk about, you know, what if Russia were to use a tactical nuclear weapon on Ukraine. I mean. That 's not something Russia has ever to my knowledge said that they would consider doing that 's in the fevered imagination of Amer- of American policymakers and their you know their pet journalists in the media establishment where they you know they say, well you know that might happen no, that might not happen you're making that up completely, and if you're going to speculate completely in one direction, you should be willing to speculate in all sorts of directions and you know including an anti-ukrainian perspective that they're unwilling to entertain the possibility of
0: yeah. And, you know, in that hypothetical you laid out, which I tend to agree with, I mean, <laughs> without question, there's no way uh, uh, the U.S. would, would countenance a, a similar kind of uh, uh, provocation. And when you talk about the the Nazi element and because we're talking about the media here, I mean, that to me, the way that the corporate press in the United States has been uh, trying to reconcile the issue of these uh, Ukrainian uh, neo-Nazi units, these uh, ultra nationalists. Nationalist far right movements who, you know, uh, worship at the altar of a Nazi collaborator, Stepan Bandera, who, according to Volodymyr Zelensky, is the Ukrainian national hero. And at first, there was an outright denial that uh, there were even a presence. Then over time, that changed to, well, yeah, maybe there are some Nazis here and there sprinkled, you know, in in, in there like parsley, but it's not, to make, uh, not enough to make a difference. And now we've reached a point of what appears to be all-out acceptance. I mean, we're seeing members of the Azov Battalion being accepted on Capitol Hill. I mean, they're being portrayed as these uh, crusading war heroes and, and these sympathetic figures, which from the standpoint of the U.S. is necessary because it it legitimizes this whole uh, narrative that we're uh, uh, laying out. And uh, a big part of that narrative is this demonization of uh, of Vladimir Putin, which has not just been happening since the time of this invasion, but in reality, the entirety of uh, uh, Putin's presidency, the entire time that he's been in the leadership of Russia. You know what I mean? And so we literally have the United States, which, you know, is supposedly uh, a lover of democracy and human rights and loves to tout its history of, you know, uh, 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 defeating Nazis and all these sorts of things and fighting against these far-right sort of elements. But yet, here we are because these uh, uh, neo-Nazi and ultranationalist uh, units and elements are uh, convenient for the whims of US imperialism well they they have to be sort of upheld they have to be lionized because their presence can't be denied you know what I mean and like I'm saying it, it, it really is a journalistic malpractice to to sort of um feed into that and to not even question uh that narrative and beyond questioning uh sort of doing the complete opposite having an uncritical presentation of just that narrative you know what I mean and so I mean the fact that these types of elements these uh, uh these people who represent these The absolute worst reactionary, not only politics, but, you know, uh, brutal violence, frankly, murderous violence, um, I think says a lot both about um, the U.S. in terms of how it's orienting in terms of this war and just how deeply complicit. The corporate-owned press is, which is why I tend to say, uh, Ted, that you know the mainstream press in the United States is really—they're really just uh, uh, stenographers for uh, uh, the ruling class and the war makers.
5: Well, totally agreed, Sean. I mean, the thing is, what is interesting about this particular conflict is that it—it it is different in one really important way for U.S. propagandists. I mean, tip in the typical scenario. Whether it be Vietnam or uh, just to a lesser extent, we the U.S. has a tendency to demonize their enemies, and uh, and they can usually find some accurate or semi-accurate or stuff that they can spin. For example, Saddam's treatment of the Kurds, and they can you know they have it. They're they're dealing with an enemy. It's negative propagandizing, and frankly, you know, as a political cartoonist and political cartooning is. Inherently, kind of a negative art form. You criticize. You don't praise. Praise cartoons don't really work. That's easier to criticize because every there's always something to criticize about any your enemy because you know it's perfect. Um, but in this particular case, the U.S. has kind of climbed into bed, and uh, with with a you know its proxy here with Ukraine, uh, which is a government that you know it the many Americans, including The political leadership on Capitol Hill and the president didn't probably know much about before the conflict, uh, before they got into it. So they've kind of sort of signed a a blank check to this, you know, new ally, basically, this de facto ally. And it's like now they find out, like, oh, there are Nazis. Oh, uh, you know, they their Transparency International says it's one of the most corrupt governments in the world. Oh, what happened in 2014 really was, you know, an undemocratic coup. Oh, they're not really that democratic. They're taking off rival, uh, you know, anti-government television stations off the air, and uh, they're bl- they're banning rival political parties. Um, you know, oh, they've been bombing civilians in eastern Ukraine for eight years. These are all things I guarantee you that even many senators did not know before. Uh, voting for these like massive uh, m- you know money and weapons packages, and now they 're in bed and it is you know if you 've ever worked for a boss who whose policies you didn 't really agree with, but you kind of had to pretend to support at work it 's embarrassing and I think that 's sort of what 's going on here the u s is in bed with a regime that has a lot wrong with it and a lot to criticize. And, you know, and they can't really completely control every time Zelensky opens his mouth or, uh, you know, they show members of the Ace of Battalion, uh, you know, receiving awards with neo-Nazi insignia on their uniforms. Uh, you know, they just don't really know what, you know, they don't kind of really know. It's like an arranged marriage. They don't really know what they got. And, uh, and I think it's so it's even more embarrassing and more extreme than the usual, uh, you know, demonization of the enemy. Look how awful the Taliban are, Uh, you know, because the Taliban, there's a lot to not recommend. Right. So but in this case, you know, you're you're actually you have picked a side and you're pretending like they're perfect and pure as the driven snow. And, you know, that is not only not true. It cannot be true.
0: Definitely. And I mean, you mentioned the uh, 2014 uh, U.S.-backed coup in Maidan. And I think that's another sort of example of the hypocrisy here, because like you're saying, Ted, for eight years, uh, I believe about 14000 people were killed uh, uh, in the Donbass region. But we didn't see uh, the you know, these crocodile tears that we see now in the United States as it pertained to those Ukrainians because they weren't convenient to uh, the whims of. Of U.S. imperialism. But when that became necessary, uh, just as the whitewashing of these neo-Nazi groups became necessary, we saw a complete uh, flipping of the narrative. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour. On that note, here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington DC, we'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary
0: Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luqman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open to 02521-1320. That's two zero two five two one one three two zero. I continue to be joined by Ted Raw. And uh, Ted, I want to switch gears a little bit to uh, discuss some developments in New York City as the mayor, Eric Adams, has declared a, a state of emergency uh, concerning the inflow of migrants to the city. And we've been tracking this issue here on the show because we've been seeing a similar phenomenon here in D.C. precisely because uh, these racist right wing uh, uh, governors in states like Texas and Florida are a uh, bust- Migrants to uh, uh, DC and New York. I believe, yeah, there was one uh, plane full of migrants that even uh, made their way to uh, uh, Martha's Vineyard and things like that. And I know here in DC, I mean, for about five months. It was volunteer organizers in the city that were really helping people when they came here till the local government under uh, the supposed uh, uh, progressive mayor, Muriel Bowser, and also D.C. as a um, uh, so-called what they call it, A, a sanctuary city. And it just feels like in both cases in both the case of DC and New York I mean the the responses have just been so insufficient and and uncreative and we know that you know the the, the New York City shelter system is already uh, uh, incredibly uh, uh, overburdened and it just feels like there isn't much thought being put into uh, uh what to do with these folks who are coming to these cities who are clearly in uh, a serious need and I mean there are even times when people are put on these buses and don't know where they're going. And they think that they uh, uh, will be met with people that will help them and, you know, get them on their feet, help them find clothing. uh, I mean, uh, housing and jobs and all these sorts of things, but instead find the complete opposite. So I'm just wondering how you see um, this whole situation with uh, Eric Adams in uh, uh, New York City as it pertains uh, uh, to this issue and what you make of his response.
5: Well, I mean, look, I sympathize with Mayor Adams and and the mayors of, you know, D.C. and Chicago who have faced uh, similar challenges because of these, you know, idiot uh, governors in Florida and Texas uh, and, you you know, being willing to uh, use uh, parents and their children as pawns in their sick game. Um, And, you know, Adams, it's true. There's literally, I was listening this morning to uh, local radio in New York and, they say that there's literally the shelter population is at its highest since at least the 1970s fiscal crisis uh, in New York City. I mean that's saying a lot because the 80s were a very bad period in uh, the economy. It's also t- including the 0809 crash, um, and it's also counting the fact that half a million New Yorkers you know fled during the pandemic and never came back. So uh, you know th- there should be kind of more room and. I was thinking about how this situation really showcases the failures, uh, the limitations imposed by what I could always call gangster capitalism, um, which is sort of you know a system that, that is completely unable and un- because it's unwilling to, re- to be responsive uh, to the poor to the extent that it would take any prerogatives or privileges away from the wealthy, they can't pivot and adjust. And what I mean by that is uh, the issue of of property rights. I mean, in New York, uh, basically, the landlords and um, and also investor, uh, private investors and speculators are warehousing, trem- you know, thousands and thousands of unit, housing units. Um, there are many hotels that are sitting empty. Uh, most notably, the the uh, Four Seasons, a luxury hotel on 57th street in midtown Manhattan is completely empty. As we speak, um, these are all completely, you know, they're ready to move in. Uh, the billows are fresh, um, but they sit empty because the capital class would you know, They insist on their right to keep, um, housing and shelter empty. Um, and rather than turn it over to the government in a time of need. I mean, during world war II, at World War One, European governments uh, requisitioned part, private apartments, private homes, uh, automobiles, private automobiles for the war effort because you know they just they just didn't have enough. Well, I mean, if New York City doesn't have enough and there's a ten billion dollar shortfall, there are ways to get enough. Uh, they could impose. They can certainly have an emergency uh, tax on the New York Stock Exchange. You know, uh, fifty dollars per stock transaction would overnight raise hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to, uh, to address this crisis. Uh, and they could seize abandoned and warehoused properties that have been sitting for literally for years unused. Uh, and every neighborhood, including high-end neighborhoods like Park Avenue and Fifth Avenue, have these buildings that are completely empty, uh, boarded up for no reason. They're eyesores. Uh, they should be turned over, converted to emergency shelters, uh, for the homeless and for migrants, uh, and and you know, and then maybe the property owners could be compensated out of the stock tax, or maybe you don't compensate them at all because they were reckless and they can just take a loss since they obviously didn't feel that they had any uh, desire to participate in the body politic. But those solutions are are not, I guarantee you, are not being presented at Gracie Mansion to the mayor. Uh, there's no one on his team who it would be there. And would have the ideology or the imagination to to propose them. And if they did, they'd be, you know, shouted down or or ignored by the mayor because that's just not the way the system works. We can't even think about solutions like that, uh, even though they're what's needed, because the property rights of of completely irresponsible property owners are more important than the spectacle, than than the, the disgusting. Um, you know, the sight of children knocking door to door in the middle of suburban Staten Island, uh, begging for food because they're staying at, at motels that the government has put them in and has not given them food or adequate clothing for the New York winter uh, because they're still wearing their clothes from Honduras or, or Venezuela or wherever. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's to me, it's like it's such a revelation about the nature of the system it's so stark and so bleak and so gross i mean i take comfort in the fact that nothing that gross can last forever but it's it's but, it's, but in the meantime we have to suffer through it
0: Yeah. And and speaking of non solutions to pressing issues, Ted, I mean, that seems to be uh, almost a party wide mandate as it pertains to the Democrats. And I'm thinking specifically as these uh, uh, these measures recently here from uh, President Joe Biden and in a transparent attempt to try to gin up some more support as we head towards the uh, 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 midterms here in the U.S. I mean, you know, the, the student loan issue and this. The uh, marijuana issue, uh, which I think got exposed uh, pretty early on for uh, probably not going to be that impactful and things like this. And it, it just sort of shows that, you know, the, the Democrats as an institution, I mean, it's like they got nothing. It's like they and even just if we talk about. What Joe Biden as president is able to do and the power that he has all like, you know, if what he wanted to do was to uh, improve the conditions of the people that the Democrats say are their base, then I mean, there's a number of things that he could do just through executive order that uh, would do that. But he refuses. And I think that uh, talking about the Democrats broadly, I mean, that includes this uh, immigration issue. I mean, we were discussing earlier in the show about how How uh, DACA is uh, under threat and just like abortion rights, just like voting rights, just like all of these basic Democratic rights that have been struggled and fought for so hard, uh, the Democrats refuse to fight for them. And here we have uh, Biden who is trotting out these, uh, you know, uh, half measures. And I think saying half might be charitable in some cases that just aren't getting it. And if they think that that's going to be enough to want to encourage people to, you know, uh, uh, leave their homes, you know, the comfort of their homes to go vote for them, uh, that alone, then then I, I just think that they're in pretty bad shape. And of course, we don't like to be too predictive. We don't know how these races will turn out. But I mean, they're going to have to come a lot stronger than that to try to, you know, make up for um, not only what I think is a drop in the favorability of Biden and the Democrats, but frankly, um, a kind of losing faith in a lot of uh, uh, the institutions of uh, uh, the U.S. in general, Ted.
5: I agree. I mean, the the alienation of the voters, uh, you know, and particularly on the Democratic side, because Democrats are particularly good at disappointing and under-delivering to their uh, supporters. Um, You know, it's going to have widespread continuing repercussions. I mean, you know, there was a little hint of that. Uh, There have been hints of that with the anti-globalization protests and Black Lives Matter and the Bernie Sanders campaigns. Um, and, and we're going to see more of it. Uh, you know, Tulsi Gabbard's statement yesterday that she's leaving the Democratic Party was of, of some note. Um, there's, uh, but, but it, and, you know, it's it's the thing is it, at some it's not going to take long for most voters, if not all, to recognize that uh, the you know the nutritional value of the Democratic platform is you know equivalent to a marshmallow. Um, you know, there's just nothing there. I mean, uh, you know, I scratched the surface of the, uh, you know, obviously anyone sane is in favor of the presidential pardon of uh, federal uh, marijuana, uh, you know, possession uh, people. But they, even within that very slim category, it was it amounted, I, I crunched the numbers, to 0.4 percent of total federal marijuana, uh, people with a federal marijuana record, obviously a totally non-violent offense. Uh, it doesn't do anything about state or local governments. And, you know, the federal government, you know, you could say, well, Biden can't do anything about that. That's totally not true. The federal government uh, can do a lot of things, as you said, through executive order uh, that to bring the states to rain. Like, for example, uh, the drinking age is 21 uh, in all across the nation, but those are state laws. And the way that the reason that they came to be, uh, they went from 18 to 21 in many states, like New York, where I live, is because the Department of Transportation uh, advised all the states that they would lose all of their highway funds in the event that they didn't change their drinking age to 21. So every single state wants highway state funds. So they said, okay. And the federal government can do things like that uh, for all sorts of issues. And they could say, for example, if you don't Pardon, or commute the sentences of every nonviolent drug offender. Uh, then you, you know, you should. Then you will lose uh, this and that funding. Uh, for example, for the department of, from the Department of Education, or whatnot. There's a lot of ways to, to for the feds to exert pressure, uh, but you know they, they don't. They're not making the effort because they don't really care. And uh, the, you know, I think the, the, at a certain point you know, the details are maybe lost on a lot of people who just don't have time to follow the ins and outs of these things. But they sort of see in their lives that nothing changes. And and that's the, the real takeaway. And that, you know, Democrats and Republicans, but Democrats in particular, because they market themselves as being, you know, the party of the common man and woman, they can't run away from that. I mean, they can't run away from reality. And, you know, that's that's the kind of thing that The Republicans drove a truck through with Trump in 2016 and we could see happen easily, see happen again uh, in two years.
0: Yeah. And, you know, just just the strategies of uh uh the democrats is also mind blowing ted i mean it's i mean it's documented now that uh uh recently that democrats they've spent more than 53 million dollars elevating a uh, far right republican candidates in primaries out of what i personally feel is a horribly uh, misguided attempt at showing people basically look how bad they are if you don't want that you should vote for us uh you see they see seem to forget that Hillary Clinton did this very thing with Donald Trump. Uh, uh, thanks to WikiLeaks, we we know this to be true. And what happened as a result? We got a Donald Trump presidency. And so my understanding is that, you know, there's some um, uh, uh, dissent and, and, and conflict around this tactic uh, within the Democratic Party. But I mean, the fact that it's uh, being utilized at all, I think just sort of shows the uh, just just the hollowness of uh, the Democratic Party, a program at this point to where not only they will engage these uh, uh, just completely backward uh, sorts of strategies that have the potential to have serious negative material impact um, on their base. We've noted on the show before. I believe it was earlier this year that uh, Democrats in Maryland repealed their own transgender health care bill, uh, not because uh, of any of the machinations of the Republican Party, not because uh, armed fascists, you know, uh, stormed, uh, you know, the the their uh, buildings or whatever to try to force a change in vote, but because that they wanted to appeal to right wing voters in these, quote unquote, purple counties, which never works. It never works. And it just really is incredible to see how, uh, uh, the, the Democrats continue to engage these strategies, which, which never seem to net them, uh, much actual success or much benefit. And it's the rest of us that, that pay the price. And so, you know, if nothing else, Ted, it just seems like an example of how far removed, uh, uh, the Democrats are from the people that they considered their base to where, you know, uh, uh, these different policies seem designed to do a lot of things, except actually help them. You know what I mean?
5: Well, totally. I mean that you know that that, that story about the fifty-three million dollars being spent to support uh, far-right Republicans in primary races, some of whom you know it's or maybe all of whom are could very well win. Um, you know, they would have won because of Democrats. And obviously, the question then becomes: Well, do you guys? Believe in anything, anything at all, really. I mean, because you know, you, you it's, it's. This is a kind of idea that should have been brought, brought, up, up. You know, over way too many alcoholic beverages. You know, at a nice swanky uh, hotel in Washington, and then should they should have laughed about it and then gone, gone home and forgotten about it. I mean, it's, it's an insane idea. And by the way, Sean, it's also fraud. Because I (laughs) that that money was not there's not a single, you know, Democratic donor, uh, you know, like like my mom, who died a few years ago, was always donated money to Democratic causes. I'm sure she never thought, well, when I when I send money to the DNC, uh, you know, to supposedly fight uh, the Republicans, (laughs) that that money is going to be diverted uh, behind my back to go support not just Republicans, but far-right Republicans. I mean, it really is objectively fraud, and it should be prosecuted.
0: Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back, so please stay with us.
2: By Any Means
0: Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open 202 521 1320. That's 2. 2521 I am here. Ted Rawl is here as we continue. And Ted, a moment ago, we uh, I mentioned this uh, uh, marijuana uh, uh, issue in terms of uh, uh Joe Biden. And you recently published a piece on your website, Rawl.com, entitled From Pot to Jaywalking. Paid compensation to those hurt by repealed laws. And uh, uh, you note how in uh, California, Governor Gavin Newsom recently signed a new law that decriminalized uh, uh, jaywalking. And, you know, you say that you're basically in support of this. But the issue with it, like with a lot of things, is that it's not retroactive. and so. People that are impacted by these things before the passing of this legislation still have to deal with the consequences, which in some cases can be life changing. And I'm just wondering, you know, uh, why do you think that? Is And I mean, you know, particularly with um, some of these uh, Democratic officials who I think tend to want to be uh, looked upon or perceived as uh, uh, being progressive. One would think that that would be a consideration. But it seems like we rarely, if ever, uh, actually see that uh, as an aspect of it.
5: Well, Sean, I think it comes down to money. Uh, you know, it's, it's the same reason that uh, when Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote his famous Atlantic uh, magazine article, uh, making a, a very detailed, very in, incredibly strong case for reparations to the descendants of uh, African slaves, that you know, there was this deafening silence even among, uh, you know, quote-unquote liberal Democrats who are supposed to be allies of, of Black Americans. Uh, they were, you know, I mean, it's kind of like, wow, that sure would be expensive. Um, and I think uh, if, you know, you think about, for example uh the state of california which has raised millions of it's just one example has raised millions of dollars from these idiotic uh jaywalking misdemeanor citations uh which i received one myself i wasn't even jaywalking um it's a you know and and these the these uh, citations have historically always been targeted at people of color disproportionately um you know and the thing is they just don't want to pay i think i think it would be it's just sort of like, well, we did our, you know, it's lazy. We did our bit. We repealed it. It was a bad law. We've changed our mind. And you know, everybody else who, everybody who was victimized by these by these crimes and still has to deal with the aftermath. I mean, yeah, you know, they're owed a check. You know, they're they're owed they're owed an apology. They're owed a note in their in their in their permanent record that actually helps them. Uh, you know, it, it always seems to be. Like under our system, everything's punitive. Everything that's punitive lasts forever. You know, you mess up your 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 credit rating. You know, man, you're never going to be able to rent an apartment, much less buy a house. Uh, But if it turns out that the credit agency made a mistake, and you know, actually, you didn't deserve to have a bad credit rating. Well, you know, no one ever makes it up to you, and you know, says, okay, well, you know, this is a the the amount of money you lost by not being able to buy a house back in the day. But it should go. It should work both ways. If it's going to if you're going to be punitive, you should be you should be rewarding in the event that you, um, you know, in the when when it's appropriate, when it's time. And that's just not how it is. And, of course, it's because the system is cheap and mean and cruel.
0: Yeah, and you actually noted something, uh, uh, you know, speaking of this being a, uh, uh, you know, an issue of money ultimately, and you talked about how I mean, jaywalking itself uh, as a crime was kind of a creation of the auto industry to try to discourage people from walking. I wasn't aware of that, but it it makes all uh, the sense in the world that, you know, this was uh, a crime that was put on the books basically to protect, you know, uh, the super profits of this industry. And I feel like that, you know, just just says so uh, much about how so much of crime is conceived in the United States and how so many things that are considered criminal are in fact, the kind of a criminalization of poverty. And as you note in the piece, I mean, $196 uh, citation, I mean, that can be like a, a serious setback for a uh, uh, a lot of people and you know uh, you know even in different places across the country you know you p- people will be incarcerated they will put you behind bars if you are not able to pay some fine or some citation for a couple hundred or a few hundred dollars and so we're talking about what is basically a kind of debtors prison system here in uh, the United States and i think it sort of shows the uh, multi-level sort of experience of exploitation um, that poor and working people experience. And I think you're absolutely right, Ted. That these things tend to break down um uh, among uh, uh, racial lines and things like this. I mean, here in D.C., you know, uh, uh, the 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 transit uh, uh, system is all in a tizzy about you know uh, fare evasions, and they swear that they're losing their shirt because you know kids are jumping the turnstiles or whatever. But what they're proposing is uh, uh, again sort of another punitive sort of thing uh, that will only uh, increase sort of uh, the policing of mostly young. Uh, mostly black people uh, in D.C. And and all of this uh, uh, over a fair that should be drastically lowered, if not free, because, I mean, they need us uh, in order to function. And so it's just wild how we see this play out um, in uh, so many ways. And I think it just sort of exposes the fact that so much of this is sort of rooted in uh, wanting to protect uh, uh, profits and money uh, it exposes that that a lot of these things a lot of times just I mean they feel like they're for show and if what they were designed for was any real kind of justice or any real kind of accountability or any real kind of repair of the harm done by them then they would be a a far more thorough but I think because of the deeply punitive nature of uh, uh, the criminal legal system in the United States that's not something that can uh, even uh, enter consideration. You know what I mean?
5: Well, as uh, one of my lawyers once informed me, we don't have a justice system. We have a legal system. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, I'm glad you brought up, Sean, the, the D.C. subway uh, turnstile thing. We have the same, um, you know, kind of thing going on in New York. Uh, and, you know, it, it is true that it's kind of like when you really, uh, when, you, when you look at the numbers, it's a lie that, the, that, that subway fares are even a significant part, really, of the tra- of a transit authority's budget. I mean, the t- in a typical city like D.C. or New York, uh, each subway fare, if it were fully paid for, uh, would be about $25. Uh, the truth is that these systems are propped up by a variety of other taxes, particularly mostly federal Department of Transportation subsidies. And... They could just, you know, and like the fare in New York is two dollars and seventy-five cents. They could forego the two seventy-five and just round it up. It wouldn't be any big deal. I mean, I remember the Staten Island Ferry had a had a uh, turned had with a a paid system for many many years, and there was a fire, and the, the ferry terminal burned down, and they sort of figured out like it wasn't even worth it really to charge a fare, and now they don't. You know, it's just free. And uh, it, and it's like, you know, it works great. No problem. Uh, it, it's one of the it's almost like they're charging people, particularly working people who are more likely to use a subway than uh, than, you know, than, than rich people, obviously, who drive. Uh, and it's, it's like they're, they're looking for ways to trip them up and and tax them. Uh, you know, I mean, I think about you mentioned the prison stuff. I always think about. There's there's certain prison systems that literally charge the inmates by the day as if they were staying in a hotel, in some cases more than they would have to pay for like a decent motel. Uh, There's the the exploitative telephone systems that charge exorbitant rates for uh, impoverished inmates to keep in touch with their families, which is something that if we want people uh, to be rehabilitated, uh, you know, society, it's in our society's Mm -hmm. interest, those phone calls should be free and plentiful. Um, so it's just, yeah, it, it, it's the whole nature of the system is exposed by these kinds of, of, uh, of rules.
0: Yeah, definitely. And uh, this, this, this culture and this society, of course, from a, a political standpoint, and uh, I think also socially and economically, um, caught in the stranglehold of, uh, you know, the, the two-party system and of the duopoly, which is also something that you recently published a piece about on your website, Ted. Uh, the two-party system is under attack stupidly. And it's sort of interesting how you break down about how these two parties sort of complicate um, uh, the system for themselves and in the process may be disinclining people to actually want to uh, uh, take part. And uh, you sort of concluded by saying that, you know, we'll, that, we're, that we're basically stuck with the two party system until we can uh, finally free ourselves of uh, uh, this duopoly. And, you know, that's why I always say it's entirely purposeful. It's intentional that uh, any uh, uh, party outside of that simply can't get a hearing uh, uh, in the United States. They don't have access to the debate stage. Uh, The mainstream corporate press will either refuse to cover them or if they do, it will be to, you know, paint them as, uh, you know, wild eyed lunatics and, and things like this. And so it's like this, this, this uh, a two party system, which, as I think we need to note, it, it has a, a pronounced class character. I mean, it is you know entirely a sort of uh, a ruling class project, in my humble opinion, and uh, it it I think is just showing itself more and more to be completely bankrupt, and particularly as we see. All the different issues facing people in the United States and the world not getting better, but intensifying and not really being critically addressed in a substantive way by these two parties that have been in power for all these years, you know what I mean? And so that being the case, I mean, it just seems like we really have to be thinking Ted and beyond thinking, organizing and actively engaged and uh, trying to figure out, uh, uh, what kind of effort we can organize to, uh, uh overturn, uh, both the stranglehold of the two party system and, uh, sort of the capitalist system upon which it rests.
5: Totally agree. I mean, the, 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 uh, I mean, look, the two-party system is a terrible system, even within the construct of sort of capitalist uh, electoral politics. And, you know, it's, it, it's awful. And, you know, the only argument I was trying to make here is that even within the construct, uh, there's, you know, basically one thing that a two-party system offers that's uh, of note and that is helpful to voters. And frankly, that's convenient uh, labeling. You know, this is the, this uh, you might not have heard of this local candidate for judge, but she's a Democrat, which means she supposedly stands for a certain set of values, uh, and so you can sort of rely on that. You know, look for the union label, right? Um, but that's um, they're 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 schmutzing stuff up. They're mixing it up. They're they're like they're making it so it's all gray, so that we have you know uh, conservative Democrats like Joe Manchin and Joe Lieberman. We have uh, well, we used to have liberal Republicans. Uh, we have maverick Republicans like John McCain. Um, you know, we, we we have these blended primaries where, uh, you know, it's very difficult to know who stands for what or why or how to vote strategically. Um, you have, you have entire parties who have 60 percent of the vote who are who have no winner in the end because of the way it's structured. And I think you know, it's sort of to be uh, it shows that this two party system isn't even able to protect itself because ultimately uh, it's, you know, it's stupidity is its own undoing. And, you know, we uh, if, if you want revolution, uh, it's helpful to know that, you know, that, that, that the people you're looking to topple are, are really not that sharp. And uh, I, I, I think that's that's, you know, that's a helpful point helpful thing to know.
0: Yeah, for a fact, for a fact, and I agree that uh, uh, it that, that this sort of um uh delegitifica uh, this delegitimizing of uh, the system is sort of being done uh, internally, and I think frankly it might be unavoidable given the uh, contradictions both of uh, the system itself and also as I mentioned the, the sharpening contradictions of our moment and the fact that you uh, you know and, and in framing it like capitalist electoral politics, I think that's important because it points to Um, The real class character of this, and uh, therefore it's no um, surprise then that uh, poor working and oppressed people don't have their needs or issues spoken to in any real sense by either party. I think they both uh, uh, pretend to in different ways. But uh, when we see how things actually play out, then we see what is really happening there, which unfortunately is not much and I can't help but feel That here in the United States, you know, we're uh, rapidly reaching a point where uh, the center cannot hold and something is going to have to give one way or the other. And this is why I always say it's incumbent upon the people. It's incumbent upon the movement to determine which way things will go once that uh, uh, inflection point actually comes. I mean, and we can't wait until the moment comes to actually start. Are building. We have to build the boat before the storm. The ruling class, as represented by its two um, dominant political parties, the uh, Democrats and Republicans, have proven conclusively that they have no interest in addressing these issues or addressing the needs seriously of poor, working, and oppressed people. And so the real solution is what it has always been. And that's for uh, the masses of people in this country um, to not only organize, but to organize around uh, a a cogent program that is really uh, speaking to their needs. All of these things that have gone ignored for so long, I think that will only continue as long as this system does. And I tend to agree that um, the uh, sort of stranglehold that Democrats and Republicans have on uh, American politics will continue as long as the two party system itself, as currently constructed, remains in place. But also, I want to say that the electoral system is just part and parcel of the broader social, political and economic institutions of this country and indeed of uh, capitalism itself. And therefore, uh, there's no getting around addressing ourselves to the question of not only overturning uh, the capitalist system, but of understanding and uh, building the system and society that comes next. But we're going to leave it there for today here on by any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One, thank Ted Rawls so much for joining us today. We're back to with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace.
2: By any means necessary.